In recent years, more and more climate scientists have slowly been turning from just publishing papers to getting involved in lobbying and activist groups. Today's guest is one such scientist turned activist. Should science stay passive and informing, or should scientists get onto the streets and make their voices heard? On today's episode of Green Talks. Welcome to Green Talks, a show run by Green Hub, the sustainability office of the University of Twente. I'm your co-host, Klitsia. And I'm Fran. Join us as we delve into the topics of sustainability, circularity and the energy transition with guest experts leading the way to a greener future. That's right. So sit back, relax and enjoy a new episode of Green Talks. Hello, Fran. Hi, Clitzia. And hello, everyone. Welcome back to Green Talks. Today is our first recording of 2024. Indeed. Exciting. <laughs> and we have a very special episode ahead, especially considering that 2024 might be the year that we surpass 1.5 degrees as promised by the world's governments. Da, da, da. Which is very relevant. Yeah. Who did you talk to then? So, because um, for this interview, I talked to Ernst Jan Kuiper. He is a climate scientist with a PhD in glaciology um, that turned to uh, climate activism. How so? Well, he joined Extinction Rebellion, Mili Defunzi, and other groups. And uh, now they are uh, suing Shell uh, for... Um, well, he will tell you. He'll tell you exactly. No spoilers ahead. No yeah, spoilers. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking, what can I tell? But maybe it's better if I just keep it. No spoilers. Um, but we will talk a bit about the relationship between research and activism. And at one point, at what point does the science get way too clear to just stay behind and not get involved in activism? And that's what pushed him to start being an activist. Yeah. And that's like what we suggest to all our listeners, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in the interview, um, which SDG did you target? So this as this interview is very clearly related to SDG 13, Climate Action, which talks all about uh, addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Some of the goals are related to reducing damages as much as possible um, and integrating climate change into na national policy and strategy and similar. So... Climate activists are really pushing for SDG 13. Let's go. So if all, uh, all our listeners are ready, we can just jump into the interview. Let's go. Hello. Here with me is Ernst Jan Kuiper, a climate scientist, public speaker and climate activist working with Mili Defonsi, uh, Extinction Rebellion and others. Ernst, thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, before we begin, I have to ask you a question that we ask to all of our guests. What is your most unsustainable guilty pleasure? Um, I think I would go for eating cheese. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, I'm not a vegan, and having cheese every now and then is the main reason, I guess, why I'm not, uh, why I'm not a vegan. Um, so yeah, I think I, I'll have to go for that one. Having the podcast in the Netherlands means that this is the most common answer e to this question. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, it's on track for the Netherlands. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess it's in our genes or whatever. But yeah, I just can't. I just can't go without. No, I completely get it. <laughs> well, uh, I would like to start with your academic background. 
Can you tell us a bit about your work and like the bigger state of our climate considering your research? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, my my work or at least my research was was about the Greenland ice sheet um, at Utrecht University, by the way. Um, and it was about how the ice deforms within the ice sheet. So, uh, well, to oversimplify stuff, uh, uh, snow falls on the ice sheet, it compacts and it becomes ice. And then it slowly flows towards the edges of the ice sheet where it either melts or uh, falls in the ocean and drifts away. That's like the, the, the natural cycle of, of ice within the ice sheet. Um, and the way and the speed and the... Um, uh yeah like the way that ice is flowing that was top of topic i mean of my um of my phd research uh which i did for for uh just over five years uh, it took me a bit longer than uh, than i guess most of us um so but yeah i and I, I left academia in the beginning of 2019 um basically for the simple reason that i got so alarmed by by all the climate facts that i um that that I basically learned uh, during my research that, um, yeah, I decided that I wanted to work on a solution one way or another. Um, and I guess the first part of your question was, can I give an update about where climate science is, right? Yeah, exactly. Which, which I more or less forgot. Um, yeah, uh, uh, things are pretty dire, I think. Um, just, just to give you an order of magnitude idea, I think... About two weeks ago, a paper was published uh, in Nature Climate Change, if I remember correctly, that estimated the global carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. Uh, and the carbon budget is a simplification of how much CO2 we can still emit as a, uh, as a human society uh, before we hit 1.5 degrees. Uh, and the best estimate was that it's in the order of two, 250 gigatons. Uh, and we emit slightly over 40 gigatons a, a year, um, which basically means that way before 2030, we, well, way just one or two years before 2030, we run out of the carbon budget uh, at current emissions. Um, so by that time, we have 1.5 degrees basically locked into the system. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's like five, six years left. Um, at, at current global emissions. Um, and the, the, the main problem is that if we go above 1.5 degrees, uh, we are in the, in the high risk zone of um, passing certain climate tipping points, um, which include, uh, includes, I mean, um, melting of the Greenland ice sheet, uh, losing all or at least most of the tropical coral reefs, uh, part of the permafrost in places like Siberia and Canada, um, and losing the West Antarctic ice sheet. Um, and I think more or less in the same week, a paper was published that estimated that, or at least that, that concluded that the West Antarctic ice sheet, even if we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, uh, is basically doomed in the long term, uh, which would mean many meters of sea level rise in the long term already baked into the system. Um, so that's... I think those are t just two examples: the carbon budget and and uh, the West and the West Antarctic ice sheet. That that I think tell you quite a lot about the state that we're that we're in. I remember reading that paper about the West Antarctic yeah. ice sheet and just feeling so defeated. Yeah, I guess you're lucky because you live in Enschede, or at least at this at this moment in time. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the 
paper concluded somewhere, I think in the conclusions or whatever, that uh, policymakers should uh, prepare for m- multiple meters of sea level rise or, or several meters of sea level rise, um, which is what's coming um, sooner or later. Uh, and since this podcast is recorded in the Netherlands, this is at least in the long term, this is quite a big, quite a big problem. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a short summary of, of uh, where where we are, at least in terms of climate science. Um. Well, considering the depth of the problem, what is it that you're currently working on? Uh, at the moment, I'm working for Milieudefensie, as you said in the introduction, uh, which is the the Dutch branch, the Dutch branch of uh, Friends of the Earth. Um, and Milieudefensie sued uh, Shell, um, the the f- at least the formerly Dutch oil major, um, for uh, not doing enough against uh, uh, climate change. Um, and uh, that was in 2018, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then the verdict was in 2021. Uh, and the judge ruled mostly in our favor, or at least in Milieudefensie's favor. Um, and uh, ruled that Shell had to reduce its CO2 emissions by net 45% uh, in 2030 compared to 2019. Um, because that's more, align- more or less in line with uh, the global average uh, that should be done to at least have some chance of um, staying below 1.5 degrees. Um, and Shell appealed in 2021 um, and over slightly a year later uh, I, jo- I joined the court case. So that's that's when I um, started working for Mirror Defense, which, which was the summer of 20, 2020, 2022, I'm sorry. Uh, and um, now we know that the hearings will be in April, in the beginning of April of next year, so 2024. Um, and then the verdict will probably take another half a year or so. So we're talking about the end of 2024 before the judges um, will come, hopefully at least to the same conclusion, but mm. we'll see. Hopefully. Yeah, Fingers exactly. Crossed. Exactly. Uh, and what type of work are you working on as a climate scientist in an organization like this? I know we need to be careful in this part of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my lawyers told our lawyers told told me not not to to talk too much about this, but uh, it's mainly to get the climate science right um, and also the energy transition reports, mostly of the IPCC, which is the climate science one, and the IEA, the International Energy Agency. Um, to see where developments are going within the both the climate science and the energy transition uh, world, so to speak. And as an activist, you used to work also in um, uh, organized protests and civil disobedience actions. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, I'm still doing that, by the way, but <laughs> <laughs> just not as often as as um, as I used to. Um, yeah, so it it. I I started my master in 2011, I think, and I finished it in 2014. Uh, then I did five years of PhD, uh, and during those I don't know six, seven, eight years, I got increasingly more worried about climate change, since I was learn since I was learning more and more and more about the topic, um, and in the meantime, also being kind of amazed that there seem to be hardly any concrete measures or at least not up to the level that that they should be 
Um, and this continued for a couple of years. Um, and eventually in the in the summer of 2018 i decided that i wanted to do more except for uh, the standard stuff like you know reducing my own carbon footprint um except for eating cheese but uh <laughs> who knows um and and uh luckily a couple of months later uh extinction Baron was first founded in london in the uk i think uh and i think in january 2019 it was also founded in the netherlands uh, and I basically immediately decided to join um, since I had so much, so many years of of trying to, uh, well, first of all, reduce my own carbon footprint, but also um, being active in, in all kinds of lobby uh, uh, groups that weren't, at least back then, not achieving a, a whole lot. Um, and so, yeah, my first action was, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was February 2019 or, or, or March or whatever. Uh, yeah, and since then, it, I've been active for Extinction Bell in, uh, in one way or another. Um, nowadays, it's mostly by giving talks about climate change um, uh, and, and joining actions. Um, but I've done other stuff as well. It, it, it depends on how much time I have and, and how much energy. And some of our listeners might be a bit skeptical of those kinds of actions. Uh, we often hear from people claiming that it doesn't work or it just push, pushes people away from the cause. It irritates people. What would you say to them? I understand that. I, I think the, f the first question I would ask is, what is your, what is your alternative? Um, the situation is so, so severe now. We're, we're so far... Um, out of sync with the climate science, with, with with what the climate science is telling us, uh, that that only drastic measures are are basically en enough by now. Um, now that in itself, of course, is not a is not a validation of of these tactics. Um, but I think that if you look at uh, if you look at history um, and think about movements like um, the suffragettes, the LGBT uh, community. Uh, Nelson Mandela, etc. I think these movements were able to achieve major societal change only after they hit the street en masse and protested and often broke the law, if not always. Um, while most of them, although not all of them, uh, remained uh, non-violent uh, while, while protesting. Uh, I think there are, there are very few exceptions of the of of a, like a major societal change that was achieved after lobbying and signing petitions, um, and when I started to realize that, I was basically immediately sold um, uh, by by these kinds of tactics. So you say it's necessary and it's the only thing that works. I'm not sure if it's the only thing that works because um, I've. I've been uh, I've become convinced that that for example court cases can be uh, a critical tool as well, um, but I think uh, protest and and mostly the the kind of disruptive uh, civil disobedient kind of protest um, might be one of the most important tools that 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 activists have actually yeah yeah sure. And can you tell us a bit about your journey from science to activism? Where did it start? At what point and how did it bring you to like really take action and in a way give up science yeah for me it was a very slow process uh i remember that i watched the documentary of el gore in 
2006, I think it was, uh, which means that I was 18. Um, and being quite alarmed back then, but a few weeks later, I already forgot about the documentary and basically went on with my life like every puber uh, does at that age. Um, and that was un until I, I started my studies. Um, first, I did a bachelor in geology where you learn a little bit about climate change, although not too much. And it's mostly it, and, and I mean, it's mostly in a different context. Um, and after I finished my bachelor, I, I switched to a master in climate physics uh, at the same university. Um, and that's where I actually became quite, quite alarmed. But I, it was also hard to, to realize that no one else seemed to care. I mean, this was 2011, 12, 13, 14. You know, it, it, it's almost a decade ago. It, it is a decade ago. Um, and so I still was not really an activist. I, I think I tried to reduce my own carbon footprint a little bit by that time, but not, not too much. And it was only during my PhD that I became more convinced that we needed to do more. And I also had a certain responsibility in that, in that sense. Uh, and that's when I uh, first, I think it was 2015, I, I decided to join Utrecht University Fossil Free, which is a sub-branch of, of the Fossil Free move, uh, movement. Um, and we tried to convince, for example, our university to, to switch to a sustainable bank um, to get insight in the fossil fuel the, the ties with the fossil fuel companies and the university. And since we have a geology department and a chemistry department, we, we, we thought that the ties were there. Um, we did all kind of stuff. Um, try, try to convince the university to, um, get a, to get sustainable diets or sustainable catering in there, uh, in a cafeteria. Um, so we, we, with a gr group of five, six, seven people, we, we, spend actually quite a lot of time on, on doing this kind of lobby work, signing a petition every now and then, um, engaging with uh, the sustainability people at the university. Um, and we did that for a couple of years, but back then we didn't really achieve a whole lot. Uh, I would almost say we didn't achieve, we didn't achieve anything because there's just a wall of, of bureaucracy um uh, that you are that you are up against um so over the years my frustration began to began to grow um basically until 2018 um because that's when i well first of all that's when i already did that kind of stuff for a couple of years uh and we didn't achieve a whole lot um but i also went for my phd research uh to the greenland ice sheet on field work uh, in the summer of 2018. And there being surrounded for six, seven weeks by other climate scientists. Um, I, I, yeah, and when when climate scientists are sitting together over for dinner, they talk about science. That's because that's that's the that's the common um, uh, field of interest. Um, and I got so depressed after a couple of weeks that I realized that that lobbying for change was not enough. I needed to do something more. I just wasn't sure how or when or, or where. Um, 
and I just had to, f and before I, I wanted to do more, I had to finish my PhD dissertation, which takes quite a couple of months. Um, so after I came back from the field work, I finished my dissertation. And coincidentally, by that time, Extinction Baron was founded, uh, as I said before, and I basically immediately joined. Um, and it's not just, and, and while I was there, I became more and more convinced of the tactics that they were using. Um, and I also liked the fact that the movement or, and definitely the people within the movement spoke with the same urgency and, and to some extent also the same despair, um, that I felt, um, which also is quite comforting, uh, in that sense, because I felt kind of alone, uh, outside my academic circle, uh, in dealing with this kind of like major problem. Um, yeah, and as I said, since since then I've been active for Exchange Baron, which is just shy of five years now. Yeah, geez, it's a wow. lot. Yeah, and you were there on the uh, um, Greenland ice sheet. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in the middle, uh, slightly to the northwest. But how is that environment? Is it just ice all the way around? It's ice and snow all the way around. Um, yeah, it's it, it's actually the most spectacular. Th thing is landing on the Greenland ice sheet and fly and flying over it because once you're landed it's just a desert of snow and uh, if you if I looked at the map there I think in a 500 kilometer radius there was nothing except for snow and then 500 kilometers to the west there that's where the coast started um, so yeah it was it, it and yeah you're completely isolated in in a camp um, yeah it was by far the most amazing experience of my life um and uh, and uh, i also worked we also worked quite hard by the way six and a half days a oh, week wow. yeah because there's nothing else to, <laughs> to do except for eating and sleeping and working uh and saturday night was party night and then sunday we started just after lunch with with work again so s i think sunday morning was was the was your was your time off and party night being where people talk about climate science between themselves yeah <laughs> we all, we also partied a bit ah, a bit okay. <laughs> a bit and how deep was the ice there uh if i remember correctly 2500 and something 2500 meters uh and wow. 50 i think something like that two and a half kilometers two and a half kilometers of ice wow. below your feet yeah yeah it's it, i also noticed when we landed that the air is quite thin there uh which, which the first couple of days I was struggling with quite a bit, actually. Um, but yeah, that was also something that was in the back of my mind all the time. You know, we we know from 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 the climate science that that the Greenland ice sheet has a tipping point. Uh, we just aren't sure exactly where. It's probably in the order of 1.5 or 2 degrees of, of global warming, which basically means that that you know the whole thickness of the ice sheet will melt eventually. Um, if if we cannot get grip if we cannot get a grip of climate change which which was in the back of my mind quite often there because it's so it seems so vast and so so uh untouchable almost but if we let this thing run out of control um it will melt eventually um and actually the groups after me um in that camp had difficulty landing and getting off the ice sheet because it was melting uh and when the ice sheet starts to melt then the plane cannot take off because the ice gets too sticky uh so they had to stay there for a couple of more days waiting for the ice to freeze again 
Um, wow. Yeah, I was lucky in that sense. I could get off the ice sheet uh, as planned. Wow. Well, in this kind of last section, we're approaching the end of the, the talk. I would like to ask you a personal question because recently you became a father. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I was wondering how does that impact one's view of the future of our climate and does it influence your activism? Yeah, I, I became a father, uh, if I counted correctly, 11 weeks ago. Well, something like that, just shy of three months. Yeah. Um, it did change my activism in the sense that I have less time. <laughs> Um, so I, I attended one action since, um, and that's it. Um, so in that sense, it did change my, my level of activism or my level of involvement at least. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a hard question. I get this question quite, quite often. I never really know how to answer it. Um, on a personal note, I'm very happy that I was born in the Netherlands, uh, and so is my son. Um, because we, I mean, we will get some serious problems with climate change, especially in the long term with sea level rise, but we are not the, the most vulnerable, um, country or com or community to climate change. Um, at the end of the day, we will have enough food in the Netherlands for now, at, at least the next couple of decades, um, which is not the case for people in the global South, or at least for many of them. Um, so that's something, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm not sure if glad is the right word, but I'm very relieved with, um, but yeah, I, it, it maybe I've uh, all this bad news coming from the climate science community. It maybe it touches me even more than it used to, but I'm, I'm not sure the, the, the intervals too short, uh, to tell, I guess, but, um, maybe i also don't want to think about it too much that's fair yeah yeah like most people do by by the way but uh well um the last question basically what is your main takeaway uh for our listeners um i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna quote my favorite climate scientist here kevin anderson uh and he often ends his talks with uh, we either implement radical climate policy or we get a radical climate change. Uh, those are the only two two options that are left after basically 30 years of doing nothing or, or next to nothing. Um, and it's up to us which one we choose. Uh, and I choose radical climate uh, policy uh, because I'm damn afraid of climate of radical climate change. Yeah, understandable. Well, thank you very much. It was a very insightful interview and um, I hope we get a chance to meet you again uh, on the podcast. Until then, that was Green Talks and thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks thank for you for me. listening. If you would like to stay updated on all new episodes, make sure to subscribe to Green Talks on your favorite podcasting platform, whether it's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Deezer or more. You can also find video versions of the podcast on YouTube. We are your hosts. I'm Klitsia. And Fran. Rawan Alfadel is helping us behind the scenes with preparations and research. Melania Ardelan is our editor. The show is organized by GreenHub, the sustainability office at the University of Twente in Enschede, Netherlands. See you in the next episode of Green Talks. Mm -hmm.